This episode is brought to you in partnership with Autodesk, NVIDIA, Dell Technologies, Garden Studios, Epic Games, and Unreal Engine. Hello, you're listening to Future of Film Podcast. My name is Alex Stoltz, and this is a show where we share insights and strategies from the game changers, trailblazers, and disruptors who are shaping film's future. And I'm delighted today to welcome Niels Alberg to the show. Niels is CEO and co-founder of Publicom.io. For the past 20 years, he has been working in applied research, strategy and creative business development, specializing designing innovative research methods for a large number of clients. He has now brought this insight into the world of film and storytelling with Publicom, which is well, it's an incredibly innovative and exciting development. It combines anthropological re- research and AI technology to provide storytellers, filmmakers, creators, an insight into their audience at a very early development stage and allows them to take on board responses, um, thoughts and ideas about their projects from their audience and then assimilate them back into the project to enhance it, to develop it, to improve it so it has a better chance of cutting through in the marketplace. If you are enjoying the show, just want to find out more, head on over to futureoffilm.live. Here you can check out all five seasons of the podcast and explore some of the other resources like Future of Film Summit, Future of Film Report, and Future of Film Incubator. And new for 22, we have Future of Film Inside. This is our special membership program, which gives you the opportunity to get the inside track on Future of Film. There are a range of plans and benefits available, including access to exclusive content, networking sessions, and member-only events. So if the future of screen storytelling is important to you, important to your work, this is a great opportunity. So please do check out Future of Film Inside and our other resources at the home of Future of Film. That's futureoffilm.live. And I started the show by asking Niels about the genesis of Publicom and how that came about. Well, it started, um, well, maybe I should just tell a little bit about my company because uh, my company behind Publicom is actually not uh, from the film industry by native. Um, we are a research consultancy based in Copenhagen. And um, by chance, I would say, uh, one day we just uh, realized a little bit about how uh, people are working in the early stage of uh, film developing, uh, which, uh, to be honest, is very different <laughs> from most of the other uh, clients that we work with. Uh, since we learned that um, listening to the market, so to speak, or to the audience, uh, wasn't really a thing you do in the beginning. 
um, other project. It's uh, something you do maybe when you are getting close to launch and you want to think about the positioning in it, uh, your, your film in the market, uh, which to me uh, seemed very, very late compared to many other industries uh, that we're working with, which is everything from uh, other cultural events like uh, museums, um, theaters, but also way more commercial products. Uh, so, uh, working with, with these types of companies, we will always listen very closely to uh, what the interest is from people who are receiving <laughs> our new product or communication or whatever we're working with. Um, but we learned that, uh, in general, that is never really happening in the film industry. So, uh, what we did was actually we, uh, we called up the Danish Film Institute and suggested that uh, we did a project together where we are looking at uh, how uh, how are people actually working in the very early stage of developing a story and how uh, could a good way be to be involved with the audience because <clears throat> something must clearly be wrong since you are not really listening. So actually, Publicum has built on, a, on some insights that we, uh, we then uh, created together with the Danish Film Institute where we did not interview the audience, but we interviewed the people behind the storytelling. So that was directors, writers, producers, uh, also distributors. So that's kind of the background, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that observation that there's this disconnect between the the early, the conception, if you like, and the, uh, and then the, the distribution of the release is something which we in, in the film space you kind of get you know you sort of get used to it and it always seems it's always seems strange but maybe it just took someone coming from the outside a little bit to say hang on that seems a bit strange um, and and so how tell me tell me you know how did the Danish Film Institute respond to that and what was the what was the results of that initial test well um to be honest i first of all i just got that uh, insight about how the industry worked because we uh, we were contacted by a production company and we learned about that specific product uh, or process uh, and then uh, i was really surprised about that but i got even more surprised when i presented that insight to the to the uh, institute because i said yeah that happens very much <laughs> that's not just a unique case you found right there um, so they were actually quite uh, excited about trying to engage also the, the Danish community in how to maybe you know work differently. So I think they could really recognize the problem and they were really uh, eager on trying to solve it. So together with this uh, group of people from the from the Danish film industry, we we conducted a lot of interviews, and we had another group similar to what the, those we interviewed. And together we tried to work out what could then be some tools, um, because I think that was one of the key insights that we found in our research were a little bit of myth busting there that. Uh, there was kind of a perception that creative people are not really curious about the audience. They just want to work with the art, with the art, and they have a story in their guts, <laughs> and they want to tell this story. But I don't think that's actually what we found. To be honest, uh, I, I did find a, a lot of people being both very curious about the audience, but also quite frustrated about the tools that you could uh, engage the audience with. Which, uh, in a large extent, I would say was uh, often just box office uh, numbers uh, and, uh, you know, benchmarking up against previous uh, movies that has done well, that are similar. And and to be honest, I don't think that uh, at least in, in the way that uh, we work with 
creativity and art and filmmaking in, in Europe, that's not necessarily super inspiring <laughs> for, for creative people. They want to write a new story. They want to feel that they are inventing a, a new angle on, on things that we share. Um, and that's not necessarily just uh, identifying the standard recipe of, uh, of what has been uh, successful previously. Yeah, I mean, it feels particularly uh, even more uh, noticeable that that issue now with streaming platforms having access to so much data and being able to, in theory, uh, create uh, and commission projects based on you know knowing their audience, uh, or at least that's the. That's kind of a story um, some of them like to portray. And, uh, and yeah, I think it's always been an issue for the independent producer to think about, you, you know, benchmarking, looking at comparables. And, yeah, you would look at box office if you could get hold of box office. But, you know, in these days, box office, of course, in my last few years, that's been fairly meaningless. And, and now it just doesn't it really is not the, not reliable as a way to uh, to to model something but and of course it doesn't tell you what people really think um, and no and, and uh, to be honest uh, Alex I think that um, one of the insights we had again was uh, people were actually quite curious also about data but maybe not in the shape that they they were presented it was presented to them. So I think actually our conclusion was for for some years now and also because of the streaming platforms, as you're you mentioning, I think the industry is trying to force data into creativity, but we understood we need to, to turn that around a little bit and force creativity into data. Uh, and that's why we wanted to work not only with big uh, large data sets and AI, but also to combine that with the anthropology part. So that's my my background as a sociologist, and my company is specialized in uh, qualitative research. Also, before we went into the film industry, and one interesting thing that we learned when we have uh, done the project with the Danish Film Institute was that uh, our phone started ringing, which uh, in the other end there was a producer or there was a writer that that told us, "Ah, I think actually now I know uh, which type of data I want to work with. I, I want to work with the more soft data." So I'm really curious about the audience, but I want to see the audience from a more anthropological point of view. I want to know them as uh, as people and not just as content consumers. Um, and I think that was kind of an epiphany uh, for us uh, that also inspired us to to develop our own tool, Publicum, later on, uh, because we think uh, we realized that. Uh, we are actually doing a lot of the same things as, as, storage writer, as storage writers are doing because they do a lot of research as well and they think a lot about uh, why people take different choices and what would you do in a certain dilemma and uh, how would a scene play out and so on. And that's actually very close to <laughs> how we work uh, as well as anthropologists. Um, that's exactly what we do. We then conduct an analysis in the end and uh, maybe a little bit more structured with the insights and they write a story uh, and are definitely much more creative than we are. But the first part of the the, the road is, is really the same in a way. So I guess there was, we, we just discovered there was a really good eye level uh, connection between the anthropology and the story writing. That makes sense. And so tell me, well, tell me more about how 
the process works what you're presented with a an idea a concept um and and who who are you talking to at this point is it is it just a writer or or a bigger team no it's it's normally a bigger team <clears throat> so from the production side it is uh, it is also always the writer it's the producer and it's also the director so that would be the most common way to do it and then we also work closely with the, the national institutes often so both in denmark and in uh, norway and the netherlands and, and belgium they have experts uh, that are very good at selecting maybe the the right people uh, the right target groups that we should lay and then later on involve but the first step is actually really talking about that story and often when we start a project we will be at a very early stage um, that can be uh, it can be a treatment it can be the first draft of a minus or a script um, and what we will do is that uh, we will <laughs> we will unplug the machines uh, onto like the second step and then we'll just read the machine the story sorry that we will read the story as humans um, so they will normally share a script uh, we will read through that and uh, since we're not filmmakers of professions, we're like social scientists, we'll probably have a few different angles on what people can identify as um, important or what maybe can trigger emotions in the script um, than the, maybe than the writer has thought about. So we have like a half-day workshop at that point where we will present some of the... Uh, some of our thinking about how people can relate to this story if we just you know represent uh, the audience from a contemporary society and then we will talk about you know what they have had in mind so far what their creative intention is with the product and together we will select one or two different uh, themes that we think this is actually super interesting to understand what people on a both a uh, larger scale but also on a deeper way feel for certain different things, which can be anything from what is a good friendship to uh, what is narcissism or what's an outsider or whatever. That's not, you know, something that a previous script or uh, algorithm are deciding. That's something we decide together with the, with the team. So that would be the first step. So you're, so you're identifying those points of uh, emotion or talking points, if you like. The, yeah sorry. yeah and it's uh, it's it's i think to us it's very important that this is not just something a machine will do or we will suggest as a as social scientists that this is something something we work together with the creative team to to pick out because it, i think it's super important to understand our service it's super important to know that we always have the creative intention in the sense that we're not trying to evaluate the story or to tell people this is a bad idea we don't believe in this uh, come back in a year when you have a better idea. That's not the intention. The intention to under is to understand, okay, you have this interest in this story. Uh, how can we help you connect this to the audience? So we, we call the process treatment emotion connection, which is exactly what we're trying to look for. What, how can you find a way into the audience that connects with uh, the intention that you have? And... Yeah, you gave some potential examples of that. So it can be quite sort of, yeah, it, it, it can be different, I suppose, from the, the subject matter of the film. It can be something which they haven't necessarily thought of. And then what do you, what do, you do with that? How do you start 
um, you know, looking at audiences' reactions? Yeah, so it's it's always uh, something unique for each project. Uh, at once, we have uh, identified a theme, like uh, what's the feeling of being a minority, for instance, uh, is a project that we have uh, at the moment in Norway. Um, we will then take that uh, theme and move into the uh, first step of the analysis. And that is the AI part, um, where we have... Um, basically a, a big ear listening to the online conversations. So we will select an area, a geographical area, where we want to know what people think of uh, minorities and which feelings they have for minorities. And in this case, uh, we compared uh, Norway to Sweden, for instance. And what we do there is we have a we have an access to an online scraping service uh, or social listening tool, if you want. Uh, where we can then create a, a very large search string uh, where we will uh, take all the words we can think of that can, people can use in their own words and their own language to express that they are talking and telling what they think of uh, minorities. Uh, and that generates a huge file normally. Uh, it will be around 100,000, 200,000 different documents Then we will have as our main source of data. Uh, and uh, when I say documents, that can be anything from a news article to a tweet, uh, discussion in a forum. Uh, it's it's actually just things published online, <laughs> if you want, um, that has something to do with the theme that the creative people are interested in. And this big file is um, something we will get uh, and feed our algorithm with. And what our machine is doing for us is just basically reading through all of these documents. 200,000 documents will take us like a year <laughs> to go over, uh, but it does that very, very quickly. And um, we have developed the algorithm in a way so it's, it's only looking for the keywords that really carries a central meaning. Uh, and basically what it does is that it's looking for connections between the keywords. So the more the same words are being used, then the machine can help us understand, okay, there's like a specific conversation about something down here in this area. It creates like a visual map for us. Uh, and uh, maybe in that map, it will show us five to six, seven different discourses about what people are talking about connected to this uh, theme. And it does that by looking at how the different keywords are connected. So this is, sorry, this is a little bit technical. Uh, maybe it's also difficult to understand without no visuals. But imagine like a, a big colored map in front of you and and uh, the machine has helped us basically translate all the discussions with a minority group. Uh, what are the main discussions right now based on understanding how the words are connected? And basically, that's what we have asked the machine to do, and nothing more, because we uh, we then take over there as uh, as sociologists and anthropologists, and are then started starting to look at reading through all the the, the most dominant uh, discussions in there, the most shared articles, uh, the most comments and posts, and so on, so we can understand in this. Uh, discourse area number one of discussing uh, discussing what a minority is. What are people actually talking about in this uh, cluster of conversation that the, the machine helps us identify? And what are the feelings that we can connect? Are they uh, are they excited about this, or are they angry about this, or are they curious? Or what are the kind of the sentiments in these discussions? But that's something we do um, more qualitatively. 
You're listening to Future of Film Podcast with me, Alex Stoltz. If you're enjoying the show, why not check out our new membership program? Future of Film Inside is your opportunity to get the inside track on everything Future of Film has to offer, including priority access to new content, member-only events, and exclusive networking sessions. So that's Future of Film Inside, available now at futureoffilm.live. And now, back to the show. It sounds incredibly complex, but I can I can imagine, you know, the the, the kind of results. With something like the example you gave um, of, of feeling like a minority, I'd imagine you you might get quite sort of polarized views on that, or polarized. Is that something that you can? Um, yeah, I guess it's not always consensus, is there? There's lots of different views which you have to assimilate. Yeah. yeah, and I think our task is not either to report back to the to the creative people what the entire society think about all aspects of the minor, of the minority discussion. We have, of course, to select the conversation that has most relevance for what we know their intention is with the story. They're not telling. <laughs> they're not here to make a scientific report. They're here to tell a story, and we have, we have, because we have listened and have a lot of long discussion in the beginning. We know what their interest in the story is, so we will pl- select those conversations that have uh, most impact or um, has most directly connection to what they actually are wanting to tell us in the world, and not just anything about minorities. Um, yeah, yeah, um, that makes sense, and then it's a case of presenting that back to the the creative team to give them that these are some of the this is what your emo, these are some of the emotional points in your project the conversational points this is being reflected out out here in the in the wider world this is kind of people in a way people's responses to that but then, yeah, that, I mean, that's that's really interesting. But how do how do people then take that back into their their creative work? How can it? How does it affect the <clears throat> process? Yeah. So, um, what happens after this analysis is that we'll have another workshop where we will very thro- thoroughly go through all these clusters of conversations that we have decided uh, is relevant, um, and yeah, uh, it's it's used in the way that. Um, if, uh, for instance, I can find another conflict. For instance, in a in a story where they think uh, in the script they have might have some ideas of um, I had a scene here and people are having a conflict about a certain uh, area, but we can see this is actually not something people have conflicts about. We can see they have conflicts about different other things. So there can be different dilemmas, for instance, where they think you know uh, this is very pointy <laughs> what we have in the story, but maybe it's something that. That we have identified this is something people feel they have been talking about for 10 years <laughs> there's nothing that's not a really new angle in this or we can also come up with another angle on um, on an aspect in the discussion they haven't seen at all so there can be many things it can also be um in another norwegian project um, that was just actually part of the can uh, film festival pre- uh, premiered down there a project called uh, sick of myself 
uh, it was also used to build a character that was like a super narcissistic <laughs> character, which was kind of the, the fun part of this uh, comedy. Uh, and we gave input to what people really associated to being a narcissist in Denmark, Norway, and Sweden compared, and uh, and gave the director there, Christopher, some opportunities to um, to how he wanted further develop that uh, character. So that's another angle this can be used for. And basically, the, I guess our trick with this is to uh, to reduce the level of gut feelings that. I have as a sociologist, of course, as, as a, the guy providing the insights, but I, of course also the the way that people think about this. As, right? So I might have a lot of ideas of what I, what what the audience would think is super recognizable as a narcissist, but to be honest, I don't know. So that's uh, that's that's the way we we'll, we are engaging people on the larger scale. And this is instead of you know benchmarking up against previous script and the box office. This is our bit on you know using big data, so basically listening to the society as at a larger scale to understand what are people actually connecting your themes to in reality, and not just in in your own understanding or in my understanding as uh, somebody helping uh, analyzing this. Yeah. Uh, so is there a big difference between how Norwegians and Swedes think of narcissism. <laughs> yeah, we, we I think we found some quite uh, quite interesting differences. Of course, uh, we're neighboring countries, so we also find some similarities. And um, I think we can uh, agree on uh, in according to to uh, to the analysis that we did that uh, in both Denmark and Norway and Sweden, you uh, you would consider a narcissist as a bastard, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but uh, in in Denmark, uh, a lot of the content that was really shared and commented on uh, was related to romance and um, and were also always portraying a man, always a man. <laughs> uh, and there was uh, because uh, because of the romance part um, wasn't kind of a guide to how to fall in love with with a with a narcissist. It was uh, rather the opposite about how to spot a narcissist before you get uh, too fascinated about them. So, so we concluded that in Denmark, we see a narcissist as a dangerous bastard. Uh, and that's kind of different from what we found in Sweden, where we concluded that uh, they see a, a narcissist as a poor bastard in a way, because a lot of the content over there was really related to uh, discussions about this, uh, this should be seen and treated as an illness. Uh, Sweden is a very social oriented uh, country. And if you are too focused on yourself, there must be something wrong. You fell out of the, like uh, the big society, and you uh, you actually you need help to come back. So they have a discussion right now about uh, treating narcissism uh, on you know the public public welfare system. Uh, so like uh, a more caring angle basically than in Denmark. And then finally in Norway, we concluded they they see uh, still this uh, bastard, but they see it as a useful bastard because a lot of the content there was really related to politicians and the CEOs and basically uh, people uh, <laughs> willing to take a, a nasty decision and fire people and run a country and so on. Um, so that was kind of the map that we could see people connecting narcissism too differently, even though we are very close. Uh, where I'm sitting right now here in my office, uh, I can actually look at Sweden. Uh, <laughs> so it's just across the water here, but uh, still there, there exists some quite big differences. And our job is not to to then direct the the, the, the creative team into working in one specific way, but he now knows you know, what is the emotional landscape compared to narcissism in this, these different markets that he needs to have his film to succeed in. 
and the, then he can, of course, take the creative decisions as he wants. It's very important for our deliveries that we're not trying to copy what the machine would do and give you a, like a creative brief and say, you're stupid if you're not working with the useful bastard. <laughs> but if you, you think it's more surprising to work with uh, the poor bastard and there is energy in that for him, I think he should do that. Uh, but he's now just aware of he's working with the Swedish angle. So it's it's to inform him to take some creative decisions, but we're not trying to dominate at all what, what people are doing with the insights. And the the, the the conversations you're observing, they're not necessarily from people who would you know are going to be buying cinema tickets or are subscribers to any particular platform. They're just it is the general public. Is that right? That is right. In this step, it is. So that's why we have a second step as well. Because when once we have these insights laid out, you could say we have, so to speak, identified the social discourses in a certain market about how they are connecting to the key theme in a specific story. Then we will move into the anthropological part, which is the last step in the analysis, where we are including uh, normally, if it's a normal film project, we will include 30 people uh, that will participate in an uh, anthropological research uh, period for six days. Um, we've designed a new and developed uh, our own tool there uh, for mobilized anthropology, where we can, where people can film themselves, and we can give them new questions every day over six days. And we now know uh, what we want to, uh, we now also know as social scientists, what are the right questions to ask if we want to know more about uh, narcissism in Norway, because we now know on a bigger scale what the society connects to. And if we think it could be actually quite interesting to understand if uh, if we have a country where uh, <laughs> a narcissist is useful, uh, but we want to know about uh, Swedes' uh, perception, uh, about how can a, a narcissist actually be be useful in a country where we think it's actually we're caring for them and we want to give them uh, treatment. We will know now exactly this is a question that could be interesting to to ask to these people, which I think we could never have, have identified just by you know thinking about it. So this is uh, really inspiring us to to write, ask the right questions um, connected to what you know the society at a larger scale are really connecting uh, these uh, themes to. But that's not all we do there. So I'd say like maybe half the day, half of the, the days in the research is is trying to understand at a deeper level what we found with the AI part. But the second step is, uh, or, the, or the second period of the anthropological phase is normally used for something a little bit more uh, tied up with the story. So that could be testing specific scenes, uh, reading out parts of the uh, of the script, testing visuals, uh, looking at characters and so on. So things that are a little bit more connected to the specific story and not only just uh, the theme of it. And that's in the end, uh, people then self-report uh, to the questions that we have designed for each of the, the projects and they will uh, have, they will create around 400 reactions for each project. And we will then go through, transcribe and um, have as our second step of uh, data basically. And then it's it's fed back to the storytellers. And then it's fed back, yeah, sorry, in, in the in a, the last workshop, then we will present what people with their own words are 
are saying about narcissism or the mm. scenes of the characters, pictures, visuals. Um, we're selecting the, the most significant quotes. We're playing the videos so they can see their facial expressions and so on, uh, which uh, I think is uh, going back to the question about what data is. <laughs> I think facial expression uh, for a, a writer is really strong evidence, actually, and, and often very good data. Um, they know how to read a face, basically. Fascinating. Uh, I'm sure this, you know, I'm sure it's it's really interesting for the for the creators. But then, what do they do? You know, how do they take this on? I mean, yeah, are there examples of projects you've worked with where they've changed an, an approach based on this, or is it just like increment? Is you know, is it more incremental, just honing it? Oh, yeah. No, I think we have, um, in most cases, we, we're working with, um, we will get the feedback on how they're changing a story. And uh, Let me have an example from the Netherlands where we were testing different characters um, and they didn't really find the lead characters to be so funny. Uh, and or at least they didn't maybe understand completely the humor that the writer was trying to convey. Uh, but there was a side character, like a 90-year-old uh, grandmom who just wanted to kill herself. <laughs> and actually, we didn't necessarily test the humor with her, uh, but just something else. But people found her really hilarious. Uh, and that gave them some... The, the, gave the, the, the team, first of all, it gave them an idea of promoting that character to be more central in the story. But it also really gave them uh, an insight into what people found was funny in the story. So they could go back and iterate a little bit about um, the different scenes and the tonality in the humor, basically. Yeah. And it sounds like people have been receptive because, you, you, I mean, you, you said that there's a uh, there's maybe a perception that creators aren't so interested in this piece. Um, have you had any resistance from people sort of, you know, adopting the process or or, or not? Well, uh, not so much, to be honest. Um, I think we've also had the luck that um, we are often uh, being introduced by some of the national film bodies. So they kind of endorse working with us. So so they, they probably take the first nasty meeting there and spare us that. Uh, but when, once we have uh, once we have done the first uh, startup meeting, I think people, of course, need to know a little bit about what it is uh, they're going into, uh, what they are exposing their story to, so to speak. Um, I would say uh, once they have understood, uh, this is not you know, about evaluating uh, your story. This is about trying to find new angles that you can be inspired of. And this is uh, kind of a, put it uh, stupidly, but this is kind of a buffet for them in the creative sense. This is the more opportunities and they are kind of uh, in the driver's seat in choosing which questions should we ask, uh, what themes do you want to dig into? And when they understand they are steering this process basically together with us, they get super excited normally and very curious. And my experience is actually, um, it's normally the, the most creative people that gets more, more engaged. Um, it's not so. I, I guess in the beginning, when we started this a few years ago, um, there were some assumptions in this industry that this is something that the film bodies would think is very interesting because they're funding it. It's something that the distributors would think is interesting because it's bringing audience insights into the early stage of uh, developing. 
but can you really convince the uh, the riders specifically? <laughs> uh, but I think it's it's normally actually the riders that we have the closest collaborations uh, with because they they can definitely see how they can go back, change the character, change scenes, uh, change the tonality, and so on uh, with this. So. Uh, they will often become those who will have most questions that uh, we will ask the audience in the end. And and the audience, uh, I mean, that's that's fascinating. The audience themselves, you know, you have all this engagement with them. They're really kind of getting to grips with the project. Do they? Is is there a way to sort of keep <laughs> keep keep engaging them throughout the process? I suppose because it would be nice, wouldn't it? I suppose to be able to go back to them when it's released and to you know to help you know get word of mouth hopefully and yeah to build a community yeah i think um since this is a qualitative sample of people that we're speaking with it's normally just 30 people which is a normal research sample for for quality for research also if you do it uh, not on phones, but but with home visits and so on. It's still not uh, uh, for you know creating ambassadors and uh, promoters of your project. I think that's too limited uh, that group there. But what you can do, uh, and we've we've done that a few times. Um, we've done that with uh, SF Studios in Denmark, where we have uh, helped them create a, a new Danish uh, high school uh, drama, basically. Um, then we engaged them for a longer period of time. So, of course, they participated like we normally do, where they, they come in and these six days are spent uh, working on uh, input from the script. <clears throat> but we also then identified a handful of these uh, young people that we thought were actually just really spot on uh, to provide further information. Uh, so they came in the end kind of co-writers together with the with the scriptwriter. So she had the opportunity to, I think, through three or four different workshops uh, to iterate her script, to spare with them, to understand what are the words being used in the high school class. Um, what is a good relationship? Uh, how's a guy hot? <laughs> Stuff like that, that maybe is a little bit uh, difficult to know when you are 50 and trying to pretend you're 18. Uh, so a, a lot of the projects we've had is actually with um, with a young audience as well. And I think that's also, um, now you ask about uh, uh, how, how the things are implemented. It's often something that is really interesting to test uh, with a young audience, is this a conversation that feels natural to you in a classroom, for instance? Because um, not a lot of 18 years old write movies, but not a lot of 50 years old ladies go to high school. So <laughs> that's a nice way to connect these two um, to have them meet that at that point. I love it. That's the, the idea of the audience as a collaborator, collaborator, and yeah, creative partner in the project. That is very yeah. exciting. Nils, um, well, uh, it, it's, it's incredibly exciting what you're doing. Obviously, it's, um, you know, it, not everyone can tap into the service. Do you, would you have some more general advice for storytellers, creators who are you know, thinking about this space, um, but... Well, apart from obviously <laughs> reaching out to you and uh, and engaging publicum, but more generally, is there anything you would impress? Yeah, I think if you have to do something a little bit more on on your uh, on your own, uh, again, I think much of the stuff that the the people are doing already uh, in, in script writing is 
we're doing maybe not on the AI part because that's a little bit specialized and also demands a little bit of technology. But uh, in terms of doing a people research, I think um, the only thing I would do different <laughs> rather than what I was doing already as a scriptwriter would be I would try to engage uh, an audience and not just somebody... Uh, that I would interview because they uh, that character is uh, similar to the character I have in my movie. So I think maybe separating between story research and audience research, uh, if you do qualitative research, which I know a lot, a lot, a lot of screenwriters, basically all screenwriters, of course, are doing. Um, so if I want to, you know, write a story about a dad that uh, ends up on hearing, <laughs> I would uh, I would probably find someone who has experienced that and talk to him and her and the family and colleagues around them and so on. So I can create a trustworthy character and an environment and all this stuff. But uh, maybe <laughs> I should do the same with the audience because not a lot of people have tried that, fortunately. Uh, but the majority will have to be interested in this story without having any personal experience. So I think it would be interesting to to interview random, or maybe not random, but selected people that could be likely to watch this movie about how do they who do, how do they feel like a character for a character that falls into these kind of troubles? Do they feel sorry or what does they have to to to, to do uh, how do they have to be presented to him to understand his story and so on yeah. so basically do a lot of the stuff you're doing right now for the characters and the, the stories but just do it with the audience that has nothing to do with the characters So that was my conversation with Niels Alberg of Publicom. And if you want to find out more about Publicom or Niels, just head on over to publicom.io. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening. And I look forward to seeing you back on the Future of Film podcast very soon. Mm-hmm.